0: I-94 on Lumpen Radio.
1: Welcome, everybody, once again to another edition of I-94. As always, my name is Mr. Jamie Trecker. I am joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Good morning. And Mr. Michael Sack. Hey, Jamie. Today, we're going to be speaking with the author Chelsea G. Summer. She's got a brand new book out. It's called A Certain Hunger. It is out now from unnamed press. Is that correct? Unnamed? Yep. Yes. Unnamed. Man, that's like, how many presses are there in the world, man? There's so know. many. It's it's like a thousand of them every day. Tens of thousands. I will,
2: I will tell you this, Chelsea. You're a uh Representative from Unnamed, Olivia, is fantastic because she 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 responds very quickly and very enthusiastically. I think it's
0: Los Angeles,
1: right?
2: She out in L.A.? It is. Yeah, Yeah, (laughs) amazing.
1: Chelsea, as you can hear, has joined us. She's joining us from just outside of Stockholm, Sweden. Uh, Thank you again so much for joining us today, Chelsea. Really appreciate it.
3: Thanks so much. It's my pleasure.
1: So, Chelsea, let's start off at the beginning. Um, You've actually had a very long career in writing for – I guess what we used to call downtown magazines when I lived in New York City. Uh, I believe you were a popular sex columnist. Is that right? We-
3: <laughs> I was, yeah, we- uh, sort of. Um, it was for Adult Magazine, which was yep. online and slightly in with the in crowd. It was it was hip, and somehow I was missed. yep. Was yeah. that nerve? No, uh, it was called Adult. Adult. Oh, oh, it is. Yeah. Literally
1: an adult. Yeah, no. Yeah. And because we share kind of a mutual acquaintance, I think you're friends with the illustrator Molly Kerbappel. So, um, yeah, no, she's
3: a very good friend of mine. Yeah, yep.
1: I kind of know her uh, sideways because she's friends with some people. I have a lot of uh, friends in the comic book community. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, kind of a side real thing. Um, Let's start, though. This book is, you know, when I read it, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, John Lanchester's A Debt to Pleasure, which came out in uh, the 90s, uh, Booker Prize winner. Um, it's one mm-hmm. of my favorite books, actually. So when I read this, uh, I was like, oh, you know, this is kind of a, a female take on sort of the same thing. Um, I don't think I'm spoiling anything because uh, the book. The body count starts quite quickly in this book by saying that your your lead character uh, is going to go through a, a series of uh, innocent young men and then cook them and eat them. And uh, she this is both a satire, I think, in a sense, of the overwrought food writing that we sometimes see in um, hip magazines, as well as kind of a more feminist take on um, – a murder mystery, it's rare to see a female cannibal protagonist. At least I cannot remember the last time I read about one. Can you talk a little bit, Chelsea, about um, what your aims were for this book and and tell us a little bit about the background of it?
3: Yeah, well, thanks so much for bringing up A Debt to Pleasure. It's one of my all-time favorite books. Um, And it made such an enormous impression upon me that I haven't revisited it since it came out because I'm afraid I won't love it as much um in writing this book I didn't really know what I had until I finished it which I think is sometimes true for writers I, I didn't like put my hands on my hips and was like I'm going to write a book about that's a satire of foodieism. um rather I had a sort of artistic break and I really needed to express myself and I just was like, this is the story, I'm doing it. Um, and it came about because I was going to Italy in 2011. My job at the time sent me to Italy, and a friend of mine was like, oh, you can write your own Eat, Pray, Love. And I was like, yeah, I'll write Love, Pray, Eat. Um, and then I was like, actually, that's an awesome idea. And uh, yeah, so I, that was essentially the, the justice of the book.
1: Did you did you think about John Lanchester's book at all when you were writing this? Uh, I mean, I, I just again, Debt of Pleasure is actually one of my favorite books as well, and I remember uh, it made a very strong impression on me. So it was hard for me, in a sense, when I was reading the book, to put you know John's book to the side, in a sense.
3: Hmm. I would say that John Lanchester's book is the book I would write if I was smart enough to write it. I think he's just genius, and it was an extraordinary novel. Um, I think for any writer, it's hard to divorce yourself and your creativity from the layers and layers and strata of things both amazing, and horrible, and enraging, and whimsical that have touched you. Um, the two books that were most in my mind as I was writing this were Eat, Pray, Love and American Psycho. And then probably the third one would be the, uh, Hannibal series, which I love. Um, and you're right that I did want to, I did think about this being a, an ardently feminist take on a crime story uh and that i wanted to put feminist thought at the center of of this story but do it in a way that wasn't like annoying i hope although i guess a lot of people are annoyed by the book so whatever (laughs) whoops i
2: I don't think the book was annoying i think i think dorothy was unlikable for sure um in the Mm -hmm. same way patrick bateman was and the funny thing is, though, about both of those novels, and I, I'm a huge uh, fan of Ellis until about 15 years ago. I'm not a big fan of his later novels, and his political writing can be uh, a little unsettling. But this, anyway, um, but as I was reading, you know, I I ended, just like I did in American Psycho, you end up I, and I don't know if everyone's like this, but I was like rooting for Dorothy. I mean, we know early on that she's incarcerated. But um, mm-hmm. just like Bateman, the, the me generation world that he lived in, this um, pseudo-intellectual foodie world that D- Dorothy lives in, I ended up rooting for, um, for both of them because it's just, you know, both of them are just talking about pretentiousness and how to fight back against that, and
0: both of them chose. Well, I identify in a fight with their anger. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I hate
2: foodie writing. I'm going to just come out with it right now. I I don't read it. Um, I, I, I'm like, I'm not going to re- spend my time reading about a plate of food. Um, and I know, you know <laughs> a, a lot of people don't agree with me on that, but it's just, it is absolutely not my thing. And um, But as to going through this, I was actually able to uh, learn a little bit about foodie culture. Well, people get ice picks in their necks. So yeah, that, was, that was great. I, I also, i, I got to
1: say, I, I had uh, sympathy for, as a former freelance writer, you know, I, I worked for many years in, in magazines and newspapers before moving to TV and then now radio. So I, I had a lot of sympathy for uh, her when she's called into the office and she's she's let go. Um, I did think she missed a trick by not killing that woman, I will say. I, I thought that was something that...
3: Well, Uh, Yeah, except that Dorothy doesn't just kill because she's angry. She doesn't just kill because somebody has ticked her off. She kills because she wants the person with her. Right. And I don't think she wanted Chloe with her ever again. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you
1: know? No, I, I, that's, a, that's a good point. And I, I think if you could go into that a little deeper, because, I mean, there are some really interesting passages in the book. And a couple of things I didn't know. I did not know that cannibalism actually is technically not illegal, except I believe in Iowa uh, in your book. Um, yeah. It, and it's a, it is a different take. I mean, she does kill um, because she, in many ways, likes the person. Can you, can you take us through mm-hmm. a little of that?
3: yeah so i'll so fiction It's like oh fiction it came from my brain um unconsciously i think i imbued the book with my own feelings of frustration of having uh you know relationships and love affairs end and then when they end it's just over like this person that you've had um all this intimate time with shared your most n- naked literally and meta- you know metaphysically and metaphorically self um, they're just gone from your life and I've always had a hard time processing like well what do I do with these feelings how do I how do I acknowledge this loss how do I you know get past my feelings of anger and and recognize that this is something that's special that has evaporated. Um and so the the novel is very much a way of coping with these feelings of these people who with whom I had it and there's no there no one to one correlations and I didn't kill and eat anybody, but you Mm -hmm. know, relationships that I've had where that they were complex, they were conflicted, they were, you know, fraught, and yet I loved them. And after they were gone from my life, I was like, well, I'd still like to have them with me. I just don't really want to spend any more time with them.
1: I don't know if we have an extradition treaty with Sweden, so if you did kill or eat <laughs> anyone, you know, you, you may be safe on, on well, Chicago. <laughs> <that>. <laughs> you know,
0: it's, it's interesting that you mentioned the books um, that you did. That were in your mind while you were writing. I guess, I guess they're not really much of a stretch, but I'm interested in, in, one, how you wrote against and with the currents of those books. But the Hannibal series in, in particular, while I was reading your book, I first I tried to get the, the uh, Lanchester book from the library. There's like 20 holds on it. I couldn't, I couldn't I get it. I am happy now, by the
2: way.
0: Okay. Um, and then
1: – Yeah, and
3: it's, it's not on Kindle, which oh, really? no. is driving me oh, – That's yes, crazy. Like no, it's he, driving me nuts. He, yeah. won't,
1: he won't release it as an e-book. Really? What about well, audio? Uh, it's not an audio book either. Really? Um, yeah. He he very not to derail this, but he's no, very good. strict about that. He does he wants it in paper, oh. and he wants people to sit down and read it because he f- believes very strongly in the old fashioned book reading experience. He wrote a column for the Guardian, I believe, or it was either the Guardian or the London Goodness. Review of Books about that. He must and about be a genius. Why he's got not doing leverage that. like that. Well, I mean, it won the Booker Prize. Yeah. So,
0: yeah. Um. Well, that the Hannibal series. So I I checked out uh, Silence of the Lambs. I hadn't mm-hmm. read it from the from the. Library, and uh, there's this line in there where Harris, the author, is, is describing Lecter, and he says um, he says something like his his mind was unbound by, by hate or love, the way uh, Milton's mind was unbound by physics. His mind was free. Um, Dorothy, I, I, that was kind of that was kind of the fun of reading the book for me is trying to figure out whether or not her mind, whether or not she was really in control. And um I wanted to know if you had your mind if you were certain about her in that sense while you were writing or if she kind of danced around and she was hard to get a hold of while you were writing. Her. Uh
3: well first to Hannibal um the I I like I love the series I love the television series I I love all things as problematic as they are and they really are um the, I it's a it's a harsh it's a horror series it's very much part of my blood at this point um but one thing that really annoyed me about hannibal is he's always really good at everything and you know having him played by mads mickelson who can actually cook and I love that guy. you know yeah, I mean, yeah he's so awesome he's a beautiful um man. and he he really is you know like like what what can't mads do um <laughs> and really annoyed me like there's there's a thing there's a thing about being s- just flawless that, that I found really annoying. So it was important to me to make Dorothy very flawed. So she's not as smart as she thinks she is. She's not as good at being a murderer as she thinks she is. She's, um, she's probably not as good a food critic. I don't know, as she thinks she is. (laughs) Um, and she's not a very you know trustworthy narrator which of course you wouldn't expect from somebody who's a you know a psychopathic cannibal but um i think that her sense of being in control is something that waffles it it wobbles through the through the course of the book there are moments when she's very much not in control and she doesn't know how to feel about that. but she
0: also likes it. I could relate to that part of her is Yeah. She like she almost puts herself in situations purposefully to be out of control. Yeah. And um I guess it should be more eerie that I identified with her.
3: Huh. <laughs> I do I mean I, I think that that's a very human thing though. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, like I get a lot of comments about, you know, I didn't want to like her this much. I didn't want to you know this this book made me really hungry. I'm very troubled by that. <laughs> um, <laughs> um and uh i i just think it's you know it's it's a human it's a human thing you're immersed in this woman's voice it's very seductive you're part of her story she's holding you close to her breast it's a it's a whole big thing and of course you feel these things
1: we're speaking with the author chelsea g summers her new book is a certain hunger it's a novel out right now and actually we should take a break and listen to some of chelsea's writing uh this week as always the novel is read by shanna van volt music is provided to us today by alabaster de plume it's from the international anthem recording company and we thank both of them we'll be right back after this short interlude with a reading from a certain hunger we're speaking with chelsea summers
4: People tend to think that the most natural stories begin at their beginning and unwind their middle to their completion, and sometimes they do. But that narrative structure is only as true as time, which is to say that it's as much a construct as a house, or a dress, or a turducken. Stories are, like justice or a skyscraper, things that humans fabricate. I started this story, for example, somewhere near the end, but that doesn't make it any less true. It makes it artful, but not false. Let me pause to tell a story from when I was a little girl. It's also true. Everything here is true because, really, why would I lie? When I was very young, long before I ever lost my virginity or ever kissed a boy, around 12 I think, I had a vision. I imagined throwing a lavish affair, a sort of punctuation mark on my adult life. I saw myself inviting all my lovers, present and past, to a dinner party. I knew even if puberty was dawning fluffy and pointed as a kitten that my life would be rich with men. These men, I imagined, would be plentiful, interesting, attractive, and above all, devout. In my imagination, I'd send each of them an invitation. Something edged in black spiky ink on heavy stationery, weighty as schlag, textured as flan, colored the delicate white of the fat marbling a prime cut of steak. Each man would RSVP yes, delightedly, each unknowing that the invitation was not for him alone, and each thrilled to his core to see me. I could not then imagine I'd ever have a lover who would not want to see me again. I still can't. I envisioned a long dinner table, so much longer than it was wide, shiny and black as a beetle's carapace, lined with tall straight-backed chairs that were topped with long-spired skewers like the spikes in an Iron Maiden. In my imagination, these men I loved would sit together, ranged along the two sides of the table, joined by their adoration for me and united in their befuddlement. They wouldn't know each other, they wouldn't know why they were there, and I would sit at the head of the table smiling. In my jejun imagination, my dream lovers were uniform, each as beautiful, masculine, and replaceable as an arrow shirt model. What does a 12-year-old know about men? To a girl, a man of 30 is impossibly old, if inconceivably desirable and infinitely replaceable. At 12, my lust was little more than a vague mauve egg nestled in my cotton panties. I knew that lust was a dangerous thing, but I wanted these men to lust for me. Even though I didn't know the precise shape and weight of lust, I knew that lust was power, and I wanted power even then. Thus my painfully specific imagined feast: the formal invitations, the long and slick black table, the two martial lines of men, the spiky dining tables, the shining cutlery, the glinting of the glasses, the smell of the roast meat, the quiet sound of polite if menacing conversation, the palpable befuddlement, and my sitting poised and plumped as a Persian cat at the table's head. Thus my fantasy of power, this from the fecund imaginations of a twelve-year-old girl. It's amazing I didn't turn out worse
1: than I did. And that was an excerpt from the novel A Certain Hunger. It's out now by Chelsea G. Summers, and we're speaking to her live from somewhere outside of Stockholm. Uh, that was a little recitation, uh, Chelsea, uh, just about her childhood and uh, Dorothy's feelings toward men and kind of the way that she thought she was going to grow up. One of the things that I thought was interesting in this book was, um, was the fact that she became a writer and a food writer in a very particular time, kind of in the go-go 90s, which I assume uh, just because of the way you wrote the book that you had a lot of experience in. Uh, It rang very true uh, to me as well because I, I was also working in the business at that point. Can you talk a little bit about why you wanted to skewer food writing, however, as opposed to some other things? Or was that just because it fit with the cannibalism theme of it? I I just wondered, because your writing in other venues obviously deals with other subjects, and I wondered if there was something about food writing in particular that got under your skin.
3: So at the time, while I was writing this, I was working as a uh, a wine writer. I was working as a copywriter for a wine company, Um, and I was doing a lot of describing of wine all the time. (laughs) every day and I was reading a lot of you know descriptions of wine all the time every day which frequently was tied into descriptions of food and so I think that I had a you know it's a debut novel I didn't go to grad school for for fiction I didn't have any like overarching guiding force for writing this I was like well this is a thing I know and it feels really comfortable and uh i read um gail green's one of gail green's memoirs very early on in the process about the first three chapters and i was like yep got it and i'm done um and i really took that voice and you know dialed it up to 11 and kind of wet it with my history as a sex writer, and uh, yeah, used used I used the tools that I had to make something n- new and unfamiliar to me as a writer.
2: Well, the the descriptions and the similes throughout the novel when I when I was first reading, I was like, wow, this woman is very descriptive. And then obviously, because I don't read food writing, Mike had to explain to me that that's how it's written. Um, I just wanted to ask you, Chelsea. Did you get any backlash? Uh, I know. I think I read somewhere that you had a hard time getting it published at first, and I was wondering yep. if you if you got any backlash for the content. Um, and I was wondering if it was specifically because you're a woman. A lot of men write serial killer novels, and but a lot of the stuff that we see coming out written by women is like Gone Girl or you know the Janet dom- Ivanovich. Yeah, the, yeah. Well, not that, but I'm not, But like domestic <laughs> suspense. Um, Mm -hmm. And this is kind of the opposite of that. Mm -hmm. It's not some fraught woman being doing something and having someone after them or they're after someone else. This is just like a Mm -hmm. straight-up serial killer. And I haven't Mm -hmm. read a lot of uh, women serial killer novels, and I was just wondering if you could touch on that a little.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, my sister, the serial killer, came out about, what, a year and a half ago? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm trying to think. There are... uh, Couple of other ones. Sorry, hold on. My dog just came in. Hi, <laughs> hi, Boots.
2: That's okay. Mike and I are dog owners. We love dogs. <laughs> hey, buddy.
3: <laughs> um, yeah, you saw. Okay. Uh, so there, there are a few. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm sorry. Just real quick, the question again. Oh uh, backlash. Yeah. Oh, backlash. Yeah. So I, ha- I really haven't suffered any backlash yet. But fingers crossed. Mm. I really am one of those strange masochists who enjoys when people feel angry at my writing sometimes. Um, But the, the female serial killer thing was important to me because I had been reading and watching and listening to a lot of true crime stuff and at the heart of most true crime, there are dead women. And I got really tired of it. Um, I got really tired of books animated by dead women. And um, so I wanted to take back that narrative, rewrite it, reconfigure it, show a different side of it, and, and create something that harnessed my anger harnessed my frustrations harnessed my feelings of of you know homicidal rage and uh and afterwards i felt a lot better about the world getting it published was very very difficult um i think in total i got about the novel got about 25 rejections it was first published as an audible original in october of 2019, oh. and then and that took. There were about 15 rejections, 16 rejections before it got published by Audible, and then unnamed bought it. And I think there were about another 10 or 12 rejections in between Audible's, you know, buying it and then unnamed buying it. Um, and a lot of the rejections were pretty lame. There were things like. She writes gore too well. It's like, well, dude, that's horror. That's what horror does. <laughs> horror, is, horror is gore. Like, it's, I don't know what you mean by too well. Like, you grossed out? Good. Um you're supposed to be so it was very it was very hard to find a publisher and it's been really nice to see the book resonate with a bunch of really unusual like people that I didn't really expect it to to resonate with um,
2: I could just, and sorry go ahead
3: no no you please you please go I, ahead
2: I was just thinking about some PhD guy working at a publisher being like this is a this gore is explained just too well. It's going to upset people. It's like, well, that's what horror. I mean, you said it, but it's so obvious to me.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Well, most, I mean, most of the editors that my agent, uh, had approached were women. And I think that they were thoroughly unaccustomed to Hmm. reading anything with entrails, um, much (laughs) less a lot of entrails. So it was very hard for it to find a home. And I'm like, have you are you familiar with a book called a uh, with a book called uh, American Psycho? You know, it's never been out of print. It's been turned into a movie and a musical and a play. Like, um, you know, are you familiar with Chuck Palahniuk? Like, sells very well, uh, but yeah. it was yeah, it was kidding. very it was very hard to find a publisher, and so it's you know it's nice to see people embrace it.
1: With that, we've got to take a break and remind folks of things like station identification and the folks that make this station possible. We're speaking with the author Chelsea Summers. We're talking about her new novel, A Certain Hunger. It's out now from Unnamed. When we come back, we're actually going to hear another reading from that book, and then we're going to return to Chelsea in conversation. As always, you are listening to I-94. This is WLPN Lumpin' Radio, Chicago.
4: This spring on I-94... Jeff Cohen, David Camp, Kevin Mattson, Max Pessora, Julia Sanchez, Chelsea Summers, Suleiman Adonia, Fariha Wasson, Brontez Purnell, William Hazelgrove, and many, many more. Only on Lumpen's Books and Literature Show, I-94. Every Thursday and Sunday at 11 a.m. And now, back to I-94 on Lumpin' Radio. The human body holds 66 pounds of comestible meat on average, more than you might expect given how much of a human's is inedible. More interesting to my thinking is how many different parts are ingested by different peoples. Some argue in favor of the obvious cuts, the buttocks, the loins, the tender bits around the ribs, the savory marrow, steaks round a speed skaters' thighs, the succulent brain... Others go somewhat more outré, the palms of the hands, the cheeks, the upper arm. To eat a human heart seems cliché, almost tautological in its weighted emotional shape. I could see the beauty in consuming the blood, perhaps in a nice sausage, but most argue that the blood is too problematic, too potentially contaminated. I suspect it's merely too gross. Universally, people seem to avoid eating the eyeballs and the penis, the former is bitter and the latter, chewy. Do a little research and you find there's a surprising amount of available information on the cooking and eating of people. So much, in fact, that one could begin to believe it's entirely normal. Of course, in some cultures, it is. Ours is not one of them. No Western European culture openly embraces the eating of people. We will do it on the down-low, though. Medicinal cannibalism lived into the 20th century. Even in the South Pacific, the cannibal capital of the world, there aren't many cultures left who practice the tradition of cannibalism. It has been bludgeoned out of them with religion, with laws, with sticks. No, there aren't many people on this wet blue planet that do condone the eating of humans and those who do are hardly held up as a beacon of culinary inspiration. Cannibalism, tellingly, isn't illegal in many countries. It's perfectly legal, for example, across most of the United States of America. Idaho's felony law prohibiting cannibalism is an anomaly. Kill and eat a human, and the authorities will charge you with murder, of course. Merely eat a human, and you may be hit with a charge of desecrating a corpse. In most states, it's a misdemeanor. I'm not telling you this to imply you should eat a human. I'm telling you this merely to show that you could eat a human, if your tastes run that way, that is. I killed Giovanni in 2000, and I got away with it. The polizia called me several days after I had returned to New York, which was two days after I had hit Giovanni, and one day after I had eaten, his liver cooked nicely and spread on good Tuscan toast. After the Polizia had found his body, they wanted to talk to me. I was, after all, the person who had most recently seen him alive. Giovanni Traverso, an officer explained in a voice careful and measured as a metronome, had been hit by a car with great force. His body had flown and been impaled. He laid there for hours until he was found by a local farmer who had summoned the Polizia. Judging from the state of Signor Traverso's body, the police suspected that he had, in part, been eaten by a singhial who populated the woods. Come terrible, I murmured. How awful. And then I shuddered a wee, stifled sob into the receiver. Per favor, signora," said the poliziotto on the other end of the phone, a voice heavy and reassuring as a bowl of Papa al Pomodoro. We know it's very difficult, but we need to know if you have any idea how Signor Traverso came to have his incidente, how he might have been hit by the car. I told him it was very difficult indeed. I asked for a moment to compose myself. I had several days to come up with a plausible story about why Giovanni was walking on that narrow Piemonte road in the dark, how it might have been conceivable a car would have caused to hit him, why I might have been entirely innocent in this whole regrettable situation. None of my stories were very good. All fit like couture garments, too baroque, too improbable, too embroidered. I went with the truth, or a version of it. We had a fight. Giovanni was so angry with me, I said, dropping my voice to a whisper. He stopped the car in the middle of the road, and he yelled at me. He said... He said... He said... He, he hated me. He called me names. Terrible names. He got out of the car and threw the keys at me. Tears crept into my voice. I didn't know I was capable of them, but I sometimes surprised myself. I didn't know what else to do. He scared me so. I turned the key in the ignition. I began driving, and I just kept driving. I drove back to the Agriturismo, Turismo, expecting he'd show up, but he didn't. I paused. Please, Signora, continue. The voice on the other end of the phone was kindly, avuncular. The next day, I drove back to Giovanni's apartment in Genoa. Again, he didn't show up. I assumed he was so angry that he was avoiding me. I decided to leave his car and go home. The day after, I changed my ticket and flew back to New York City early. I didn't hear from him. I thought he was angry, not dead. I let my tears flow. The poliziotto waited patiently. He told me to please calm down, maybe drink a little wine, to call a friend, to eat something. He told me he was sorry for my loss, and he was sorry to be the bearer of such terrible news. He inquired if this number was the best to reach me, and I told him it was, asking him to call if he heard anything about Giovanni. He thanked me, and that was that. I never heard another thing about Giovanni Traverso. He was a luscious memory I held in my head. I could take his memory out of safekeeping and stroke it when I needed it. Giovanni was right where I needed him to be.
1: Welcome back once again to I-94 here on and Radio. As always, I'm Mr. Jamie Trecker. I'm joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Howdy. And Mr. Michael Sack. Hello. And right before the break, we heard a short excerpt from the new novel from Chelsea G. Summers. It is called A Certain Hunger. And we've been speaking to her from just outside Stockholm, Sweden. Uh, right before the break, you were talking about how difficult it was to get this novel published. And, uh, you know, the... the the problems that it seemed that certain editors had with your description of gore and stuff. I actually want to go back and talk a little bit about Gail Green. You mentioned her in the first half of the show for people who are not familiar with who Gail Green is. She was a very famous, uh, food writer for New York magazine. And I believe she was also the either lover or wife of the man that owned the magazine, uh, Clay Felker. Uh, and of course that magazine was published by the New York Herald Tribune in the 1960s. Uh, green is a a kind of infamous figure because she was, um, Well, she was kind of an enfant terrible on on the scene. She was known for writing very flowery descriptions of food, and she was also known for being what we would call, I guess, a large presence in in crowds. She was very, very uh, strong-willed. And I think it's interesting that you reacted so strongly to her writing um, because Gil Green today, it's weird, is kind of largely forgotten. Uh, When Mm -hmm. people talk about food writers, uh, she is not someone that comes to mind. And yet she ruled over New York in a certain period of time, which gets to my question. You know, this is uh, a really interesting capsule of kind of 90s go-go era New York. And I wondered if that was a little bit deliberate, if you were also commenting on so many of the things that seemed so important in that period were actually very ephemeral. Uh, reading this, of course, in kind of the post-Trump era, and Trump is really the epitome of 90s go-go New York. I I just wonder if that was another layer that you were thinking about when you were writing this book.
3: So I moved to New York in 1989, uh, just before it all kind of, you know, exploded in that way. Um, And and I spent most of the 90s as a student and as a stripper, um, which helped finance my studies and so and and part of that time also I was I was working in restaurants and uh, working as a hostess as a server um, at you know like top restaurants so I saw a lot of that kind of you know I don't know if you've remember the food from the 90s but it was always like make build the plate higher like the higher the food the closer to god It was all these towering stacks of food with like stuff sticking out of the center of it like it it, you know like little skyscrapers of food um and i just thought the whole thing was absolutely absurd and yet there was something yeah there there was something about the the, about 90s New York that I look back at now and I really I really miss like my neighborhood has changed and and the city has changed. and a lot of those things about the you know like the, the loss of neighborhood stores, the loss of, of neighborhood businesses, the encroaching like global corporation Dwayne Reed on every block thing, that really began in the 90s and so much of the book was also spurred by just a love letter to a city that is gone
2: would you say that would tie in with your character of emma who was dorothy's best friend she was Mm -hmm. in college she was kind of just a a nobody nerd and then she became this like punk rock super artist in new york also a recluse and what would you would you say that that would be also I don't know is would would you say Emma's satire or or did you or was that
3: I mean I think there are sorry I think that there are things about the art the way that that uh Emma talks about her art that suggests satire there it is it is on a on a you know like it's a book with I think, multiple levels. And one of those levels is the art world, which is absolutely rich for satire. I don't know enough about it. Um, Emma was always, to me, kind of a second half, like the the other side of Dorothy, like Dorothy's missing moral compass. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's funny that you brought up Molly Crabapple at the beginning, but she was my muse. Like, Mm -hmm. I wrote it, I wrote Emma for and based on, or inspired by, not based on, um, by Molly.
2: Who's that that behind you, Chelsea?
3: Um, That was my dog. I know. What's what's his name? Uh, His name is Bob the Dog. And he's a a year and a half old mini Australian Shepherd.
4: Oh, Oh, man. That's
0: so sweet. We we migrated
3: here in August.
0: That's great.
2: Mike and I have... Four dogs between us. So. You know,
0: guys, we should we should give a shout out to uh, Tori Telfer while we're on there, We're talking about other literature. We did a book with her called "Lady Killers." It was all about female serial killers oh, through yeah, history. I read, oh, cool. yeah, I read that book. Yeah,
2: yeah. Tori was one of our really early shows. She used to live here. I think she's in Brooklyn
0: now.
1: Yeah, okay. I think she is now. Um, going back to Molly. For people that don't know who, who Molly Crabapple is, she's a very well-known illustrator and a uh, interesting journalist as well. Uh, she is not a recluse. She actually has gone around the world and drawn uh, books about Guantanamo Bay and uh, real suffering in the world. I, I really encourage people, uh, since we're since you mentioned her, to go check out her work because it's uh, extremely good. Uh, Fantagraphics, I believe, is her current publisher. I could be wrong about that, but
3: yeah, and her she's got a book contract with I, Random House. Yeah, she's okay. writing a book about the Bund. Okay,
2: you know it was uh, uh, another thing that i found amazing was the discussion of baked alaska that was Ooh, one of my uh, i had no idea what that was yeah. really and, yeah I thought, I thought it was th- fish oh no yeah. <laughs> i thought that, that was one of my favorite uh descriptions in the book just the, the the way that she thought about it and explained it i i just wanted to throw that out there i thought that was a little mega have you guys had, had it before na- so
1: my no. wife keeps it i'm glad you brought that up my wife who does the readings actually and and you'll hear them chelsea uh she has always kidded me that I've never made her a baked Alaska in the decade that we've been married. And mm-hmm. as you know, baked Alaska is obviously one of the most difficult pain-in-the-butt things to to actually make. Uh, It is ice cream that is basically baked, and it was a common uh, thing that was served uh, at the start, actually, of uh, the Republic here in the United States. Thomas Jefferson was a big fan of it. Oh,
0: okay.
2: She said, even I had to admit, the Baked Alaska was nothing but a cake novelty act after a very long description. And It's at the very end of the book. I I thought that was just like a little magnificent chunk of writing. I really enjoyed that part, just that obsession
1: let's talk a little bit about the way that you set the narrative up. I thought it was an interesting choice that we find out fairly early that Dorothy is actually in jail. Why Mm -hmm. did you make the choice to tell the story in that way? And instead of kind of leaving it open for suspense at the end.
3: So I knew that I wanted it to be a first person book like i wanted i wanted dorothy to tell her own story and the only way that it would make sense for her to tell her own story is if she's doing it from prison so then the question becomes well well the questions become how does she get caught like what trips her up and why bother telling the story um and the i i guess the other the other thing is like as i mentioned i've watched consume just a ton of true crime and I've always had a hard time with the way that those narratives are told as a finished kind of complete piece generally as sort of copaganda a way to show that cops do what they're supposed to be doing and they're really good at their jobs and 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 we should feel safe and and all of that um a lot of a lot of crimes aren't solved and uh and this it was like i felt like i wanted to take the focus off the the, whether or not she gets caught, and and just you're you know from the beginning <clears throat> that she's in jail, she's telling that story, and it's not a question.
2: We currently have a serial killer in Chicago that's a possible serial killer that's responsible for fifty one yeah uh, uh, fifty one murders, wow. and they they have no idea who it is. And I think the
0: homicide clearance rate in general is like thirteen percent. Yeah, it's real bad here. Yeah. Yeah.
2: but uh, what a, I although. I, well, i watched that night stalker documentary recently and the cops really screwed the pooch on that one i mean it was just like repeated mistakes and that uh the other guy too the uh golden state guy that guy was actually a cop and he certainly wasn't but i, I know what you're saying and, and especially fictionalized accounts you know it's like the hero cop saves him from the serial killer um i just wanted to point out that. Somebody else, had it wasn't really a question <laughs> <laughs> not really it wasn't really a question. um
1: when you i mean this is obviously your debut novel chelsea can you mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about what you hope to accomplish with the book i mean is you're you're coming to fiction um, somewhat late i mean i think as you mentioned you didn't go to grad school which to me is a plus by the way no i did i did yeah. go to grad school i, I did go writing, to grad though.
3: school for writing yeah, yeah for writing. i went to grad school for for literature oh okay oh, cool.
1: um but you were not part of an MFA program which i was not to i was me part is a of plus. a PhD
3: program in 18th century british literature
1: amazing see that's a much better thing than an MFA in writing because uh, we get a lot of books on this show that are nothing but one person stories about a professor falling in love with his students and those get very mm-hmm. very boring
0: you know we were we were talking about uh, Crabapple crab apple early drawing mm-hmm. the the cover of, the, of this book just got me is and I don't think it's mentioned on the galleys who, what the, the painting is. It looks like an Italian Renaissance painting. It's a, it's a woman holding a, a, a fresh heart. Could you tell us what painting that is?
3: I, you know, much to my shame, I don't remember. Ah, that's okay. I have no clue. I can ask Olivia, but I, I don't remember.
1: Can you talk a little bit about, though, what, I mean, it's a, it, you're coming to writing novels uh, somewhat later than most people do. Can you mm-hmm. talk a little bit about what your plans are for going forward?
3: gosh I hope it gets turned into a television series I'm extremely wealthy and I can afford to you know do my own fun.
4: <laughs> um,
3: I'm working I'm working on the, I'm working on a new novel um, my acquaintance Alexander Chi suggests that you should never talk about your work and progress Um oh. He says that what you should do is lie. So, Ooh. my work in progress is a fictionalization of Matahari.
1: Okay, very nice. Yeah, it's not. It's <laughs> not what it is. Um, but, has there been interest from working, TV? I am
3: working on the next novel. Yeah.
1: Has there been interest from TV?
3: I my lawyer has told me that I can neither confirm nor okay. deny. Okay.
1: No order to deny that well we've been speaking today with chelsea summers her new novel is a certain hunger and we're going to give you the last word as we always do and, and one final note while we do not censor and we don't approve of censorship on the show uh there are certain passages that are not fcc friendly so we have had to uh bleep those out uh, sorry about that chelsea but uh, the fcc is kind of harsh on us about that you will know those when you find out With that, we want to let you go. Thank you so much, Chelsea. We really appreciate your time today.
2: Thank you, Chelsea.
3: Thank you so much for having me. That's great.
1: And guys, once again, the novel is A Certain Hunger. Chelsea Summers It's out now from Unnamed Press. It's available at every good bookstore and library. We'll be back next week with another edition of I-94.
4: As I've mentioned, prison food is wretched, but there's room to wiggle around its wretchedness. As with most institutional meals circumscribed by narrow economics, the food the prison feeds you is almost entirely comprised of meals made from cans, boxes, or mixes by people who can't be bothered to care, served by people who have no choice. The meals abide by USDA regulations, which is to say that nutrition waves in its general direction. One thing most people don't fully comprehend is that the USDA, the United States Department of Agriculture, is for all intents and purposes run by Big Agro. Let me put it another way. The USDA is a giddy dystopian wonderland for big business. There are only a handful of American agribusiness corporations, and they essentially dictate what Americans eat because they essentially control the USDA. For example, the USDA created the nutritional pyramid first and foremost to serve agribusiness' interests, not human physical needs. And thus the meals served to schools and to prisons reflect not what the bodies of growing boys and girls or aging men and women need to thrive and or survive, Rather, these meals, planned and vetted and carefully created by lockstep scads of bureaucratic drones, worked to buttress the agribusiness economy, while costing as little as possible. Here's another way to look at it. In the 1930s, there were 5 million more American farmers than there are now, not quite a hundred years later. These farmers grew a wider range of foodstuffs on these predominantly family-owned and operated farms. More important, these farms don't exist today. The cool six-figure loss hides the growth of corporations like Monsanto and DuPont, shrouds the decrease of numbers of different crops American farmers grow, and obfuscates how what we eat is making us sick because what we are eating is in no small part dictated by the businesses that grow the raw materials for our meals. We've gained cheap food and the cheapest go to public schools and for-profit prisons, but we've lost everything else. That said, the food here at Bedford Hills is better than most prisons. We have a garden, and we're surrounded with all manner of chipper do-gooders, prison education volunteers and religious types, prison reformers, and people who want to tell us that they believe in us. They really do. Still, the lioness's share of Bedford Hill's three meals is white. White bread, white milk, white rice, white potatoes. The meat, such as it is, tends towards the stringy and inedible. It is not, as the commonplace goes, grade D fit for human consumption. There is no grade D meat. That's a myth like the organ harvesters that sprung up in chain email in the 90s, a horror that never existed created to take our minds off life's real horrors, like the fact that the pesticides DuPont creates are in essence honeybee genocide. The USDA, for all its questionable wisdom, has eight rather serviceable categories for meat: Prime, Choice, Select, Standard, Commercial, Utility, Cutter, and canner. Granted, while what we prisoners, and your public school children, Eat derives from the last four grades, there's no grade D, and the meat on our compartmentalized plate is, all things considered, edible, though not delectable. That said, only the truly hard-up inmates rely on the three squares that Bedford Hills provides. There's a robust economy in prison comestibles that's like stone soup meets burning man meets the market of Mew Marte. Your can of Goya chickpeas, then the box of stovetop stuffing, my tin of chicken breasts and can of green beans, someone else's plastic jar of jerk marinade, and between the three of us, we can create something edging on tasty. Some of us, the very lucky ones, have crockpots or rice cookers. We are the one-eyed gourmets in the kingdom of the confined. To put it very plainly, I'm lucky because I'm rich. Before incarceration, I'd sold my apartment, cashed in my 401k and my life insurance, and liquidated all my assets so my bank account showed a healthy seven figures. I came into prison with money. I'll die in prison with money. Even after the legal fees were settled, even after I paid out Casimir's kin with their wrongful death suit, I was left with lots of money, and the residuals on my published books have exploded. There's nothing like notoriety to sell a book. I'm never going to go short at the commissary. I am well-stocked with tinned everything, and my father and my siblings send me lavish care packages of the finest Uncle Ben's and Dintine Moore that their money can buy. In the real world, I'd be comfortable, but in prison terms, I'm unimaginably rich. How much can I spend on cup of noodles? Lumpin' Radio's Books and Literature program, airing every Sunday and Thursday at 11 a.m. Central. This episode featured Chelsea Summers, author of A Certain Hunger, out now from Unnamed Press. This episode originally aired on February 18th, 2021. I-94 is a Lumpin Radio production, with readings by Shanna Van Bolt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, music by Lori Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit EYE94.org. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit LumpenRadio.com.